Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner. Later on in the programme we're going to be joined by former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss but first and foremost I'm delighted to be alongside James Alcock, the CEO of Plunkett Foundation. Plunkett Foundation is a national charity supporting rural community businesses throughout the UK. James, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Now, James, um, the reason we're here, of course, is to establish your take on leadership. But before we delve into that, um, considering that today's generation of business leaders, organisation leaders, is probably grappling, I think it's fair to say, with one of the greatest challenges of our time in the shape of COVID, I think it would be remiss of me not to ask you just how much the pandemic has affected you and your operations. Well, it's been a very mixed period of time, really. Um, the um, it's, it's it's really affected uh, Plunkett Foundation and its members, which are community businesses all all, all around the UK. Um, so I'll start with our community businesses, um, and that was also a very mixed bag as well. So we we we're probably best known for our work supporting community-owned village shops, and in the very early days of the pandemic. Community shops were actually having um, quite a sort of um, a positive time almost because they were experiencing um, people being stuck at home in their villages and being advised not not to travel. So they had um, bumper trade. One of the community shops even sort of referred to it as Christmas coming um, and lasting for multiple weeks and um, sort of benefiting from the Christmas level but without any uh, warning of it coming. Um, but the cracks began to show very, very quickly for community shops. And um, whilst they were sort of doing sort of great turnover, they, like everybody else, ran out of stock very, very quickly. Um, and as stock levels started to recover in supermarkets and other nas- national retailers, community shops and rural retailers gen- um rural retailers generally really struggled to access essential supplies. Um, so that was something we were very much involved with, help, helping them work with wholesalers who themselves had had stock depleted. But unfortunately, due to the sort of limited purchasing power of community shops, they were very much at the sort of bottom of the chain and so had to really diversify their supply, supply through local suppliers, alternative suppliers and catering suppliers and all sorts. But community shops um, have had a sort of better journey than, than, than most, but it's still a very challenging one because they had to um, they had to respond to you know, incredible demand without much supply. But they were also having to sort of run with primarily volunteers who were also required to be at home and very often shielding. So they had to find a brand new sort of source of volunteers. Um, to run run their stores to get 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 their stock and to sell it, um, many of the shops decided to close because they were too small to be operating with social dis- distancing. So they had to set up very quickly with on with online ordering and home deliveries. Um, but really, at the heart of it, they were providing essential services and ensuring those most vulnerable were supported in those very remote communities. Uh, community pumps probably the next sort of biggest. Um, membership that Plunkett Foundation has 
Um, and these are pubs that originally were told that uh, people should avoid going into pubs, but of course they could continue trading. Um, so they continue trading, but without any customers. Um, and then obviously at the end of March, they were forced into closing. Um, and Plunk Plunkett's role was supporting them to um, to transition uh, and then into sort of helping them access the, the short-term business loans and business rates, et cetera. Um, but the pubs did a brilliant job. 67% of them managed to continue trading in some way, either through um, doing takeaway services or converting into um, home, um, food hubs and doing home deliveries and doing collections for prescriptions or, or taking people in, in into town, towns and cities to access medical care. Um, so, so they did a really, really good job. And in comparison, sort of 20% of private um, pubs managed to stay open. So, so that's a really impressive figure. And then other of our members, like bakeries and cafes and woodlands and farms, they all had, again, very, very different journeys. Um, and many of them lost significant levels of income. Um, but for, fortunately, despite the majority having to close during uh, the lockdown, um, they are all now back up, up and trading, um, and we haven't had any sort of permanent losses yet out of, out of nearly 700 community businesses, which, which is great. Um, Plunkett Foundation itself um, took um, a very sort of swift action to sort of get our team into home working and getting our own support services um, set up to be delivered remotely. So, so the bread and butter of what Plunkett does is providing business support to community businesses, and that's provided through face-to-face -face business advisors. So we had to switch very quickly to providing advice by Zoom um, and other, um, other mechanisms. Uh, we held online training and online um, sort of gatherings for community businesses to come together and share their stories and share their diversification activities um, but it wasn't an easy process we are we are an in-office organization and so to sort of switch overnight really into a remote service was was a challenge and from a mental health perspective just how has it been sort of managing that from a staff and members point of view because i can imagine that there have been a lot of concerned members certainly coming to the uh, the foundation but also with staff as well just sort of adjusting to new sort of working procedures there's had to be some reassurance provided there as well exactly i have to say the team have been fantastic and they adapted very very quick quickly to working from from home um Many of which, you know, we haven't we haven't all got lap laptops, we haven't all got head headsets and things things like that. But but, but they adapted incredibly quickly, and um, obviously people have different tolerances and different levels of anxiety. Um, but but part of my role was making sure that all of the staff were spoken to regularly and to ensure that they were okay working from home. Um, we also we also had and continue to have a very regular team meetings um, via conference call. Um, so it's, it's a nice way of having a formal as well as an informal chat with everybody. Um, and of course, of course, our members as, as, as well have had different experiences and, and um, some who are sort of very used to sort of running very busy, busy businesses have had to adapt and uh, potentially have to be at, be at home continuously. 
allowing a new wave of volunteers to have to come in and sort of run those businesses. So it's been very difficult for those people. But again, those those businesses at the heart of what they are doing is not just selling and delivering services, but it's about inclusion and about um, alleviating loneliness. Um, so those people that have suffered badly have had that support net- network around them. And the community pubs, for example, including those that were forced to close, they, they were doing things like holding online quizzes um, so that they had a way of engaging with those sort of most vulnerable in their local communities. And uh, I have to say, even the Plunkett Foundation staff were joining many of our pub quizzes as well. And it was a way of sort of having a bit of fun in a period where there wasn't a lot of that going on. Mm. And has there been anything that overseeing your response to this crisis has taught you, would you say, in your leadership role? I think that the biggest thing of all of Plunkism for me personally has been about the need to collaborate um, with others in the sector. And Plunkett um, and myself have always prided ourselves as being very good at collaborating in part- and uh, partnership work. But COVID-19, um, we, we've never seen partnership activity at this level. Um, we've had groups of chief execs having week- weekly telephone conversations or teleconferences. Um, and this is across sort of different types of sectors. So it might be a group of funders having conversations together. It could be a group of organizations like Plunkett that are working to support social and community enterprises um, or different sectors within that. Um, So it's something we've done to sort of look out for each other, to support each other, and um, also to identify opportunities for collaborative working. Um, I think the other thing as well has been about ensuring that we're representing our members. And uh, Plunkett has always tried to do this. But because um, I think we're a very small organization, really, and we don't have the confidence and also the the staff capacity of some, some bigger charities, but actually, when we saw that our members were at risk, for example, not being able to access key supply chains or those that were forced into closure and weren't able to access some of the government initiatives, we, we could see if we didn't act and didn't represent them, then potentially some of those would be closing permanently and having a, a huge negative impact in those local communities. So we really had to step up and and really ensure we were doing ad- advocacy work and policy work, rep- representing those members and fighting for their needs at the highest levels within government, within um, other circles, for example, funders. Um, so many funders, for example, decided to pause all of their funding programs, but that was just at the very time when those community businesses really need them. Um, so we had to do a lot of that sort of representational work, and that's given, that's given us and me personally and the team at Plunkett an enormous amount of confidence that we can do this work and we're we're very good at it and we can continue to do that and represent them and ensure they get what they need post-COVID. So so it's been a journey for us. And correct me if I'm wrong, uh, James, but if we just sort of backtrack a little bit here to sort of earlier on in um, your career with uh, Plunkett Foundation, you joined, of course, 13 years ago in 2007 and then sort of worked your way up to the CEO role that you occupy now. Based upon all of the experience that you have accumulated during your time with the organisation, if you could go back 13 years to when you first arrived, is there anything that you would do differently? 
Um, I don't think I would really. I think I've been very fortunate to have the opportunity to continue progressing in the organisation. But it's, it's actually the first role that I had at Plunkett that inspired me and kept me working for the organisation. Um, the first role that I had was a, was to project manage a, a grant fund in the northwest of England, um, which gave a small amount of funding and some business advice to a whole range of community businesses setting up. And it was seeing that diversity of organisations back then that really inspired inspired me to want to work at Plunk Plunkett. Um, it was supporting cafes, bakeries, farms, woodlands, um, all sorts of enterprises, whereas Plunkett's primarily known for its shops and its pubs. But running that project enabled me to see that community businesses can have such a, a powerful role um, running so many different businesses and services and touching so many different people. And it remains my effort to ensure that Communities across the UK realise that and are not just limited to setting up shops and pubs, of which are fantastic, but they, but they have the choice to set up a, a more diverse range of businesses should they wish to. Um, but of course, I've made many mistakes at during my time, um, but it's all been a learning curve. And I think um, I, I'm, I'm just very lucky to work for an organisation that allows you to make mistakes and to learn from them. Um, and it's, I think it's made the organisation stronger and it's made the team stronger. And indeed, I think making mistakes and embracing setbacks as a learning curve are a key element of developing into an effective leader in one's role. I don't think it's really possible to really improve without that experience. Thinking about now the future, having reflected on the past, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, James, we know over the next 12 to 18 months that we are going to have to get used to a new normal way of living and working under new uh, safety procedures, even with the lifting of lockdown. Um, so while we are going through that period before we shake off the shackles of COVID-19, hopefully decisively, what is next for you and for Plunkett Foundation and what is the organisation really looking to achieve? So Plunkett's mission is to ensure that rural communities are strong, vibrant and resilient. And that mission is is, is now just as important as, as it was before. But I think what COVID has taught us is it's, it's, it's shown the resilience of rural communities. They've been at the heart of the response to COVID-19. And I think now it's the role of Plunkett to harness some of those things that they've been brilliant, that they've been brilliant at during during the crisis and using those things to help them and other communities to set up and run even stronger and more diverse businesses going forward. So so one of the things, and there's the sort of five things that have come out of our vision, um, one of them is about strong local supply chains. Um, so just at the time when community shops and pubs weren't able to access food from, from the normal suppliers, where they were able to to um, to succeed with going to local suppliers. And of course, if you're buying lo- locally, you're also supporting local jobs, you're supporting other local businesses. Uh, and above all, it's a more resilient and stronger supply chain. Um, so doing work that promotes supply chains going forward is going to be a huge thing for Plunkett. And obviously, as part of that, promoting local food. The, the second thing is about harnessing this new wave of volunteers that we've seen, and very often volunteering, of which is obviously the, the, the heart of community businesses, is very often left to the older generation, people people that have retired and got 
time availability. But during lockdown, we've seen much young, younger people and people with families getting involved in community businesses as, as volunteers and seeing that sort of new blood come into the network and them sharing their ideas has been fantastic. And it's going to be important to ensure that community businesses adapt and are um, open to diversity within the volunteer pools to ensure that their businesses can continue to diversify and thrive. Um, thirdly, um, we've also seen employment being an important part of um, the COVID response, with so many people being furloughed and, and, and also being made redundant. We're seeing community businesses now trying to create new employment opportunities for those people. It doesn't have to be full-time positions. It can be part-time. It can be. It can just be the odd hour here and there. And in a rural community, that can make all the difference to people that perhaps have got poor health, people on low incomes, people with families, people with, with without the ability to sort of work full-time positions. Um, so, so creating employment is going to be a key thing for Plunkett and community business. The fourth is about sort of uh, making use of technology. And for example, we've seen um, people move to online ordering. And that's not something we've traditionally seen within the community business sector. Um, but enabling that to happen will give reliability to customers when they do eventually go back back to work. It will enable people to continue buying from those businesses without having to be physically there and present during, during the day. Um, and then fifthly, it's about environmental initiatives. And community businesses have always been great at doing environmental activities. Um, but we see the potential to do even more to really green up those businesses through through their activities. So those are the five things that, that really encapsulate our vision. And that, that will be keeping Plunkett busy for the next few years and putting that into action. And let's certainly hope there'll be some really good news to share over the uh, the coming uh, weeks and months on how those hopes are being borne out and how those activities are really bearing fruit. Um, James, I have to say it's been a real, real pleasure having you joining us on the uh, the programme today to discuss your take on leadership and also what's been going on at Plunkett. And I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up and have you back on the programme in future just to see how things are getting on. That'd be a pleasure. Thank you. And um, also, James, um, until we do hopefully uh, speak again, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on, of course, because there are still a great many variables in how the pandemic might go. So let's just keep our fingers crossed that it's all going to be positive trajectory from here. We will do. Thank you very much. I was speaking today to James Alcock, CEO of Plunkett Foundation. Uh, Next up on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, During his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to secure the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test wins for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, he's taken up the post of Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. I hope you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew and all of that is of course coming up next. Hello and welcome I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here thank you. The pleasure is all of ours you know and you've had a distinguished career as I said both on and off the pitch in English cricket recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public 
and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... Uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because 
that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room. For the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, Yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, Well, join the club, Quite. you know. And I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors, and. Um, yeah, it it's just an extraordinary thing, and uh, without doubt, the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something, we're all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. for, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trep Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually 
the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because. They, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And 
were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know even when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, 
um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh cancer anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death Mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Yeah. a very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what, what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing, not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing uh, wearing red. So what what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot Uh, of them (laughs) wear red trousers (laughs) anyway, I think. But um, no, absolutely. They they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in 
in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.